Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, human beings, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. So if there's anything we all need in 2020, and maybe in the first quarter of 2021, it's a cocktail. My guest today, Rodney Williams, oversees a brand central to that need, and has probably gotten many of us through this pandemic. The brand is Belvedere Vodka. But well beyond seeing that our martinis are tended to during the quarantine, both he and the brand have been actively engaged in pushing the envelope and conversation forward by taking an active role in the issues of the moment. Simultaneously, the brand has gone back to its roots, reemphasizing its traditional practices and commitment to community, a focus that also connects to its sustainability. Rodney, welcome to Brand on Purpose. And it's a real pleasure to be here with you. And as I've learned a little bit about the history of the podcast and your impetus behind it as a give back to the community, I'm especially grateful. And I want to say on behalf of many of us, thank you for what you're doing. Well, that's a great segue because I get a lot of inspiration from people like you and brands like Belvedere. That's where I'd like to start, actually. So before the murder of George Floyd and the civil unrest and the resurgence of Black Lives Matter, Belvedere, and this is under your direction, was way ahead of this and very authentically had this incredible partnership called Beautiful Future with artist Janelle Monet. Correct me if I'm wrong, it's this limited edition bottle to quote unquote, celebrate diversity, acceptance, and self-expression. Now, obviously issues of systemic racism, social justice have been going on for hundreds of years, but you know, you created this campaign prior to the murder of George Floyd. And if you can just talk a little bit about how that came about and the importance of it then and how important it is now. Yeah, so taking a step back, so about three and a half years ago, I came over to Belvedere, brought over our CMO, Billy Peretti, and we were about the process of really digging into the brand's DNA to figure out how we tell its story in a genuine and authentic way to connect with audiences. And some of the values about the power of the collective and determined optimism that are endemic to Belvedere really stood out. And so Billy and I looked at the landscape and thought, who really embodies this sort of spirit in a courageous way? And we quickly settled on Janelle Monet. She is extraordinary. And we flew down to Atlanta. We met with Janelle and her team. She actually works in a collective way. We work in a collective way. We don't have one master distiller. We work as a team. But I think what's really powerful about her is that she's incredibly genuine and courageous, I think, in what she says and what she does. Hollywood does not make it easy for artists to cross genres, to be an award-winning, Grammy-winning musician, and to be an Oscar-caliber film is extraordinary. And she's very comfortable in doing that. Once we collaborated with her and agreed to collaborate, you know, she quickly announced that she was a pansexual, which our consumer base thought was incredibly motivating because it was really an expression that she is who she is. And I think that this younger generation in particular is quite enthused about that. And so 
when we got to know her better, she has a charitable organization called Fem the Future, which is really about empowering women. We thought that one strong point of connection could be about really inviting people to frame what a future could look like together, collectively, in sort of an aspirational vein. And that was sort of the genesis behind this idea of a beautiful future, which was a collaboration of influencer dinners we did around the country and ultimately a limited edition bottle. But really the messaging behind it was that wherever you are, whatever your station in life, your dreams, your ideas about the future are welcome. And you're welcome to be you know, part of this future community. There's a place for you at the table. And Janelle kind of embodies that in her own work, in her own career, in her own principles. And that those are values that were very resonant uh, with building. And correct me if I'm wrong, but in previous press coverage, I've heard you talk about this notion of fluency fluency and rolling out programs that create more fluency around racial injustice. And I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about what you mean when you say that, both as the president and CEO of a vodka brand and also as a black man yourself. Yeah, well, I think we live in very sectarian times right now where all of us are in our own bubbles, both figuratively and quite literally in the uh, the pandemic. And it's created, you know, very raw political moment and socially as well. While we feel connected and integrated in many ways, on many levels, we just aren't. After the tragedy with George Floyd, we, like many other companies, had internal dialogues where people were talking about the impact of it. And, you know, a number of people of color were talking about their own experiences, lease or day-to-day, you know, microaggressions. And, you know, many colleagues were shocked to hear this and had no idea, not the same sense of consciousness that all of this was weighing on, on colleagues, even within, within their own midst. And so it opened the door for rich dialogue. But what it also made pretty clear is that you have people who are in fairly close collaboration, at least professionally, yet really don't know each other and live in quite different lives. So it really sort of underscores this opportunity to bring people together in ways where they're learning about and exploring more in the community, in their surroundings, among the people with whom they thought they might have known or might have been meaningfully connected, and in fact, weren't. And in this whole idea that there are voices that have pretty interesting and significant things to share, but just aren't being heard yet in the community, I think is an important one. And from a business standpoint, we all know that having differing approaches to problem solving can lead to the best idea. One of the great things I thought about business school is that we did a lot of group work and it didn't take long for the students to sort of figure out If you've got to be in a group of four or five people, you benefit from having somebody who has like really different background than you. You're really quant, you've got someone who's really qualitative and vice versa. Because these differing perspectives add a sense of richness and depth and insight that can be critical to success. 
critical to happiness. Yeah. I remember when my oldest went off to college a few years ago, I wrote him this letter. And of course, I was like crying through it. As my daughter says, I'm a very <laughs> sensitive person. I mean, it's like one of the hardest things to do is to send your kids off to school. It's, it's beautiful. And it's also really hard. But also, I feel very blessed and privileged to be able to do that and to give him those opportunities. But one of the main points I tried to make to him was seek out and find people who are not you or the exact opposite of you. Don't hang out with the same types of people and try to seek out as much kind of diverse opinions, people with different backgrounds, come from different places, because that's going to be so important. And thankfully, he goes to a university that has that built in already. Um, but I just felt so important. And I just wonder, I look back at your career and you've had this phenomenal career. You started in CPG like a lot of people do. So you're like a former P&G guy or former Johnson & Johnson guy. You went from like OnStar and automotive to booze, just kind of a funny leap, but I'm sure there's a story there. But I'm just kind of curious, how has it been for you facing whether it's microaggressions or injustice throughout your own career? And what advice do you have for young people, young people of color in particular, who are just starting out their careers? Yeah, you know, I'll take it back to what you said at the very beginning, because encouraging your son that way is super important. And I remember when I was going to business school, and I'm dating myself here, but I graduated class in 90, so it was the late 80s. And a mentor of mine said to me, and particularly said, seek out the international students because they're really interesting people you might not meet otherwise. And I made some great friends and we decided to have a series of sushi soul food dinners, you know, where we just brought people together. We had these dialogues. It was shocking to me that Japanese students were working three hours pretty much for every one hour the U.S. kids were working. And in the first meeting, uh, one of the students said that his mom was visiting from Japan and she wanted to know how many black students were in the program because she perceived blacks to be robbers, thieves, or corrupt. And the room was kind of silent initially, but being able to talk about stereotypes and where they come from and how certain uses of language are hurtful to others was incredibly powerful. It was one of the most powerful discussions I can remember. And I think, you know, fast forward to today and all of the issues around racial and social justice that have been in the news. And as I mentioned earlier, the dialogues that we've had internally, let alone external programs, just the richness of exchange and the eye-opening sorts of experiences that some people have had, even if they don't fully process what's being said, just the idea that there's this other reality that's in my midst that I wasn't aware of is quite significant, I think, and meaningful. In spite of what the political environment feels like right now, in a way, it is a rallying opportunity of, around bringing people together. So I think opening oneself up to those sorts of opportunities to share vulnerabilities as well as recognize that in others is very rich and very important, very important. Well, and I promise you don't have to comment on my, what I'm about to say, but I've often said for the last four years, the longest four years of my life, I think, Trump's presidency actually did us one major solid. 
And that one major solid was it gave light to so much kind of sleeper racism and injustice that's in this country that so many of us thought we have either had a leg up on or didn't exist. And I include people, somewhat educated people like me who live on the East Coast who I'm like, oh, that doesn't really happen anymore. And I think people are far more educated and woke than ever before. And I'm 100% wrong. And potentially there are 70 million plus people out there who are God awful people. Not all of them are racists, but his presidency was a dog whistle. And if anything, I'd rather know what we're dealing with and tackle it than have it be so subversive as it has been for the last several years and hundreds of years. Again, you don't have to comment on that. I'm just, that's just my own opinion. Yeah, my wife's grandfather was very active in the civil rights movement. And one of the people or whose work is chronicled in the Smithsonian uh, Museum on African American History in Washington. And the night of the Floyd murder, her mom called us in tears saying, you know, we've just failed. I mean, we failed this generation, you know, because nothing has changed. And I could feel and hear the pain in her voice. In fact, you know, lots has changed. There have been movements forward, but it's a journey. And there's still very much a ways to go. And the forces that have been prevailing the last four years to speak of were in place beforehand and are still in place today. So it's a process that will take time. But I will tell you this, I am incredibly encouraged by the research we do with the younger generations. I think the fact that they are digital natives and have lived broader lives in terms of having access to disparate sources of influence and ideas than maybe uh, the older cohorts did makes them quite open, I mean, to generalize in many regards beyond some of the boundaries and sort of sectarian divides that the older generations seem to abide by. And how hard is it in your role running a brand that arguably was marketed as the world's first super premium vodka, right? It's a luxury liquor. It goes all the way back to, I guess, the mid nineties. At the same time, your brand mission is to quote unquote, nourish the land we share and protect its natural character for future generations. And to some, that's a hard needle to thread because those two things aren't opposing each other, but it's very hard for people to think that luxury and sustainability or the environment can coexist. Yeah, and I will tell you that it is not easy for them to coexist. But when we look back at the business and we looked at the roots around which we were launched, it was really about this idea that there was an opportunity in the world for super premium vodka. Most people think of vodka as the first thing they drank in college or before. Gilby's. Uh, for me, yeah. it was terrible. Gilby's vodka and, and GW and the, in the 90s. <laughs> just, the way you, just the way you said it is perfect. And people do not want to revisit that experience. No. So the insight was, however, if you could craft a really, really high quality product, you might have something. Because here's a category where people are already familiar. It's not like you feel like you have to acquire a palette for mezcal or single malt scotch, but there just wasn't that refined offering. 
So that was the initial premise behind the whole thing. Now, in terms of nurturing the land, what's a surprise for a lot of people is that Poland is the first country to appellate vodka the way France or Italy or the U.S. appellates wine. And this is the rye vodka, the famous Polish rye vodka. Yep, such that there can be no additives. So in producing vodka, there's usually dispensation in other parts of the world. You can put in, you know, no more than 2% sugar or emulsifiers to round the finish and such. No additives in Polish vodka. So no added sugar, no emulsifier. And the other thing that a lot of people don't know is that even though we're made with rye, it's gluten-free. Rye is a very big molecule, and it's captured in the round of distillation. Belvedere is distilled four times so that you can drink rye-based or wheat-based vodka, and it'd be gluten-free. But in terms of the environment itself, where our commitment stands, it's been twofold. So in 2012, we started working on reducing CO2 emissions from our processes. And we cut it by 42% by 2017, just by attenuating our distillation process. We're the first, and I think the only distillery to win a green energy grant from the EU in 2018. And we use those resources to build a biomass capture facility that's coming online next quarter. And with that, we'll be able to collect the steam and the heat from distilling the vodka to create clean energy. And it will power the distillery. And within 12 months time, you know, by the time we figure out how to use batteries for the forklifts and such, we should be carbon neutral as we produce the vodka itself. And we're working on connecting into the local town grid so that when we're not distilling, we're providing Girardov Poland with clean energy, where they currently use coal for electricity. The other part of the story is that about seven years ago, we began a collaboration with the Technical University of Łódź in Poland for an annual symposium called the Raw Spirits Summit, where we bring together academicians and scientists with farmers to talk about the latest techniques and insights in terms of sustainable agriculture. And we actually produce a paper each year from those conferences. And we didn't do it you know, to make money or to even put it in an ad campaign. We were genuinely interested in giving back to the community that's given us so much. And how do you credibly communicate all of this? Because you know, you've got a lot of skeptics. Like some people, I think increasingly people buy brands that stand for something and have impact and they look a little bit behind the kind of brand, if you will, right? At the guts of what it stands for. But not everybody does. Some people are just like, you know, it just tastes good, it tastes better, <laughs> yeah, free, sure. whatever. And that's fine. And you, obviously the magic happens is social impact plus great product, right? And a price that you're willing to pay, whether it's a high-end luxury brand or not. But how do you communicate all of this kind of sustainable and environmental goodness to the average consumer of Belvedere without feeling like it's forced or you're kind of faking it, if you will, or because you're trying to just, you know, be of the moment? Well, we've launched a new communication platform called Made With Nature. Rye water distilled by fire at death counts. 
because that is true of Belvedere. Now, already people have you know written us and said, wow, what's made with nature? So for those who are really interested in learning more, it's incumbent upon us to let the rest of the story become discoverable. We studied the idea of this in five key markets on three different continents. And one thing about Belvedere is that it's presence in parts of Europe, you know, nightclubs and Ibiza and Mykonos can differ from being in specialist pubs in the UK or trendy bars in the US. But the red thread, the ligature that really seemed to speak to everyone, especially the millennial uh, generation, was this regard for environment. And it was surprising, to be honest, but really gratifying to see because I think some of the Gen Xers and Boomers, your environment's important, but as you say, it's really not the key driver in terms of purchase decisions. Much more about taste or image, and in some cases, you know, status. Where these consumers are saying, if you're doing right by the environment, I will give you love. I value this so much that this is a key driver of purchase for And I think, you know, we were going to break this campaign in in May. And of course, the whole world shut down by March with the pandemic. But if anything, the pandemic has probably made it more relevant because we're all much more cognizant of what we're eating and nutrition and are we keeping our immune systems supported and as well, you know, humbled by the power of nature and what a virus can do to a robust world, robust economies. So we're pretty excited about really engaging people around this. Now, I will be transparent in sharing that it's put us under our, some pressure ourselves. One of the tenets that we've held is that we want to eliminate the use of plastics in our packaging and such within the next five years. And it's tougher than we thought. You know, it was easy to say, oh, no, no plastic straws at brand activations. But it's amazing how in how many ways. In packaging in general, yeah. it's so complicated. The average consumer doesn't really understand the complexity around packaging. Mm-hmm. It's so true. It's yeah. so true. But it's a great goal around which to stretch and work. And we're pretty excited about that. We just learned we want a gold medal for one of our promotional packs where it's a bottle of Belvedere with a cutting board that you can use for cheese or strama or whatever. But the board is 100% recyclable. We didn't use a plastic overwrap on it. We just used a recyclable paper band to hold it all together. That's cool. So the board was structural integrity for the bottle. Uh Uh-huh. That's genius. I love it. And reusable to help, you know, whatever it is, you know, you're, you're putting a charcuterie platter together along with the drinks. There you go. Yeah. So I think if we begin to think about what we do every day, just the, even the banal activities through the lens of is this sustainable? Is this good for the environment? Is this necessary in terms of the use of materials? We could get to some places we just hadn't thought we could reach. Yeah. It's amazing how important a cultural component that is and a mindset you have to have before you go to operationalizing things. Everybody's got to be on board and understand the importance of it. You know, one of the other things I was curious about is, so before you went to Spirits, 
to Belvedere, you were at Moe Hennessy, right? And, you know, you, I'm just going to keep throwing compliments at you, but you led this brand out of decline into record growth. And before that, you know, you oversaw Jackson Family Wines. You were at Robert Mondavi. You saw the turnaround of Woodbridge. What was it like moving from wine to spirits? Thank you, Aaron, for making it clear that I've been around the block. Uh, but <laughs> um, I'm just helping recruit you to your next role. That's all. I'm just, you're, you're, you know, I'm just helping out. <laughs> that's funny. Well, I, I tell you, you know, what was really tough is moving into wine. The red thread of my work career is that it's been in marketing or marketing has been the primary path I've moved. In essence, understanding the DNA of a brand, communicating it in a meaningful way, addressing consumer unmet needs are universal, no matter what sector or industry you're in. The trick about moving into wine is that in order to have a palette, I can tell you when I arrived at Robert Mondavi, I said, so what are the books I need to read so I can build this wine palette? This seems so necessary. And, you know, they just laughed at me and they said, drink more. It's so experiential. And I think even to really understand the viticology and the history of vintages, you can do it in a rote way, but it's most impactful to just live it. And it's intimidating. I mean, I'm intimidated still by wine and wine enthusiasts. And I'm, you know, you probably are not a sommelier, but I mean, that's like, it's harder to be a sommelier than it is to be a CPA. Yeah, it is quite intimidating. I can tell you the first month on the job, I had fly out to Palm Beach and I was met by a colleague the night before for a big sales presentation at the Ritz-Carlton. And he said, I'm so glad we have an expert from Napa with us tomorrow. And I, I <laughs> you're looking around the room like, who are you talking there? about? Who is it? Who is it? <laughs> and when I realized he was talking about me, I literally, I went back to the hotel room and I memorized all of the vintage notes for everything that we were tasting. Yeah, I'd be Googling like shit. I'd be like Googling everything. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of pressure. We got the order, but it was a lot of pressure. But yes, I mean, and that's a little bit of, the challenge that wine has put itself in, in that people perceive to needing some sort of prime for when in the end, it's really about what you love and what tastes good to you. And in a way, vodka is a great muse for us in terms of craftsmanship because people actually don't expect a lot of it. In fact, the definitions of vodka were written right around the end of Prohibition in the U.S., and they stipulated that vodka has no taste, no character, no color, no aroma. You know, we launched single estate vodkas a couple years ago where we took the same grain of Dankowski rye. We planted it in the north near the Baltics of Poland where the winter's severe, so the flavor is very light. In the west where the, the continental weather comes over the plains of Europe, and so the rye is more robust. If you've never had vodka in your life, you can taste the difference between these two. And so the governing authority in the U.S., the TTB, reached out to us about a year ago, and they asked if we would voluntarily revoke the approval of our labels because we talk about taste on the back label and vodka has no taste. And we said, no, we're not going to do that. We'd welcome a Public forum. Wait, hold on a second. Don't they have better things to do than to bug you about that? Well, I think Come somebody, <laughs> you know, finally read the regs. 
But here's the punchline. And then I think it was February of this year, they revised the definitions of vodka to say it can have taste and it can have aroma and it can have flavor. So progress was made, victory for the truth. But it does show that vodka is an interesting canvas, I think, for demonstrating artisanal quality. And rye gives us, you know, the fodder that you really need. And that if you think of a a sandwich you might eat with rye bread versus white bread, it's the rye that really gives more flavor, even more flavor than bread. And dimension, for sure. There's no doubt. Yeah. And I'm a big rye guy. So Rodney, I have to admit, probably should have said this early on. I'm not a vodka guy more of a tequila guy, but I do respect vodka, vodka drinkers and what you've done. And I also think that you've given me a level of inquisitiveness that I hadn't had before, specifically about Belvedere, especially because I love the rich history of it, as well as kind of the progressive nature of the brand and the vision and the mission of the brand, because that's kind of unusual. So I appreciate that. And I won't, I promise going forward, I will not just throw vodka into a Bloody Mary, which is my favorite form of vodka. <laughs> but I will look at it differently. I'll be open-minded. I will require and know the fact that it should have flavor. And I promise to drink more Belvedere vodka, especially since I've been drinking so much over the last nine months, I might as well just mix it up a little bit. So we've got to get you then a bottle of our, our newest creation. It's called Heritage 176. And up until the 1800s, that's how they made rye vodka in Poland. They would heat the rye to separate the starch and the sugars up to 176 degrees Fahrenheit, and hence the name. So you drink this on ice, and it's like nothing else you've had. It has a very distinct, light, sort of refreshing flavor to it. And the heat does that? The heat and the molting of the rye itself creates a natural flavor. There's absolutely no sugar added to it, nothing added. It's strictly malted rye and artisanal water. Sounds awesome. It sounds clean. Yeah, I'm totally game for that. And uh, that would not be considered a bribe because you, I already have you on the show. So I'm okay. open to that. Yeah. Okay. Listen, Rodney, thank you so much for coming on the show and for providing your wisdom and hope and optimism because uh, we could all use a little bit of that or a lot of that going forward. And I think you got ample amounts of that. And I love hearing a story about Belvedere. So thanks again. Thank you for having me. Real pleasure. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quitkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of companies, organizations, and people who make it their mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing production team, including Lindsay Hand, Dara Cawthron, Julie Strickland, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show and sponsorship opportunities at brandonpurpose.com. Learn more about our host at aaronquitkin.com.